And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Join me right now, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EWTN News. He's a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English language biography of Pope Francis and also the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Matt, that's M-A-T-T, Bunsen. And remember, Register Radio airing on Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Well, Matthew, good to have you. Uh, you just got back from Rome, I think. I, I was indeed. Uh, I went to uh, Rome for... Uh, Affiliate meetings for EWTN, it was a real privilege to spend some time with uh, the leaders of EWTN literally all over the globe. Nice. Uh, everywhere from the Philippines to Poland to the Nordic countries. It's, it, it really uh, – people are often not aware of how uh, widespread uh, EWTN's influence is. And I would imagine getting together in an international gathering like that kind of uh, expands the horizon. It really is, uh, and uh, particularly memorably uh, taking part was uh, Cardinal Pietro Parolina, the Vatican Secretary of State, yeah. uh, who actually spoke with us on our first night there uh, in Frascati, just outside of uh, Rome, and uh, he had some really interesting things to say, especially about Mother Angelica, the courage that it took uh, for her to <laughs> launch EWTN. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he also talked about uh, the importance of truth and communications, and uh, also... He picked up on something that uh, we don't hear much of these days, and that is the new evangelization. Uh, we, we always associate that with uh, Pope Benedict XVI. So mm-hmm. It's very interesting to hear the Cardinal Secretary of State going back to one of those great pillars of uh, Benedict XVI's pontificate. Yeah, I sure hope it continues. <laughs> 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 well, let, let's go to a question that I've been wanting to talk with you about for a while, and for, for a variety of scheduling reasons, we've had to postpone it. It's this question. Why are so many members of the Pontifical Academy for Life seemingly at odds with church teaching? We have Pope Francis recently appointing a a pro-abortion economist to the Pontifical Academy for Life. Um, What is... Maybe we should start by asking, what's the point of the Pontifical Academy for Life? Well, this is, uh, I, I, and thank you for starting with that, because uh, I really do think that uh, it's important to revisit uh, the work of the Pontifical Academy. I mean, this was established under Pope St. John Paul II as a means of really digging into, of reflecting on the importance of life uh, and bringing together international experts uh, who could really help to articulate uh, the teachings of the Church. And it, it really flowed in so many ways from the important work that John Paul II did uh, in the defense of the culture of life and, and family life. And so to see what we are seeing here, I think, has been very uh, distressing to yep. a lot of moral theologians, uh, a lot of theologians, but also those who have been sort of defending and supporting the institution since 1994 when it was uh, first created. And, and the very phrase that is used, that it was created in defense and promotion of the value of human life and of the dignity of the person. So the question now, is, and, and to go to your question, is uh, what is the value of appointing so many new members to the academy who at first blush seem to be uh, very public in advocating Things like abortion, uh, use of artificial contraception, especially among the poor, uh, and 
having theologians, including one Jesuit moral theology professor that we can talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, who clearly supports or has at least given the indication that he supports uh, contraception in some cases and essentially what we're seeing across the board is a sort of a renunciation of humani vitae and at least the spirit of John Paul II. Yeah. I mean, what many people are fearing is they're fearing that uh, this is a uh, an acquiescence uh, to the spirit of the age. Uh, so you had... Um, you know, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, who's been linked to the World Economic Forum, uh, somebody who's admired by Bill Gates. Um, she focuses in on uh, economic issues, and apparently Pope Francis appreciates some of her perspectives on the relationship between uh, the private and public sector. Uh, but there's also, there seems to be people who are very excited about UN agenda, you know, 2030, and their sustainable development goals. When um, underneath those goals, we're finding um, pushing reproductive rights under the guise of uh, uh, health care. So, do I think people would feel a lot better if those questions <laughs> were being addressed and in, in just rather than ignored. Well, that's right. And and one of the things that we're seeing is, is this consistent appointment of uh, individuals who at least publicly seem to be holding positions that are very contrary to what the church teaches. Now, in, in full fairness, uh, we have had uh, a number of responses from the Pontifical Academy itself mm-hmm. uh, in the defense of what they're proposing uh, and in, in defense of these positions. Uh, so from that standpoint... I think one of the things that uh, at least they are saying uh, in defense of this from Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, who's mm-hmm. the, the president of it, uh, is that, as, as they put it, uh, they think it's very important uh, that the academy has a body of study and research, and part of it is to have debate and dialogue, as they put it, to take place among people from a variety of different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went on also to try to, uh, A, uh, stress that Pope Francis was apparently aware of these appointments. And uh, I, I've noted in various uh, corners of Catholic media especially uh, that Pope Francis, quote, uh, had full appreciation for the work of the Pontifical Academy and also full appreciation for the plans for the, of these appointments. Uh, but having said that... Uh, there's also an effort, sometimes I would say slightly tortured, uh, to try to either explain away their positions uh, or to sort of spin it in such a way that it isn't necessarily as uh, disturbing as many people assume it is. I would take, for example, that uh, Archbishop Paglia noted that in looking at uh, that the mazzucato that you just talked about, that the scientific work had never taken a position against life and that, quote, her deepest convictions shouldn't be judged, as he put it, by four tweets, which, of course, has made, have made the rounds now about some of the things that she has been tweeting and retweeting. But then he added that uh, uh, some of these tweets may have been, quote, pro-choice, but they were not pro-abortion. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, a- that, again, it's, it's attempting to explain uh, some of these appointments. Yeah. Uh, she's not the only you know problematic selection. You've got Roberto Del Oro, a bioethicist, a theologian at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Uh, he attacked the Dobbs decision apparently uh, during an October 12th panel discussion. Um, and 
you know, I do. I mean, I do get in principle the idea of having uh, those with whom you disagree uh, part of your conversation. It, it keeps you honest. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they double check one another and all of this. But I guess, I guess in this day and age, when the laity have access to uh, information. The, the report, there's going to be constant reporting on these things. It would really be of service if the Holy See would make an effort to help uh, lay Catholics who are interested in defending the faith, if, if they could give us a good sound rationale for some of these choices, uh, it, especially coming all at once, uh, it's troubling. Well, and on top of that, uh, we've had the years now of what some would say the demolition, others would say the reform, yeah. however you want to describe it, yeah. of uh, the John Paul II Theological yeah. Institute for Marriage and Family yep. uh, that was created again to become this great academic center for the study of church teaching, but also in the defense of Humani Vitae, of Evangelium Vitae, of the church's teachings on the sanctity of human life, on the defense of marriage and family life. Uh, and it has been noted that uh, Monsignor Philippe Bourdain, who's the, the dean of the Pontifical uh, Institute for Marriage and Family in 2015, seemed at least to be walking away from or dissenting from the church's teachings, especially those in Humani Vitae, on artificial contraception. So he claimed, of course, and argued that uh, his, his views had been misinterpreted. Uh, but it added only to the anxiety on the part of a lot of people. Uh, surrounding uh, so much of what's happening right now, yeah. but, but then we can't. We also can't let this sit in sort of um, isolation from the anxiety that's being created because of the seemingly unhindered work of the German synodal path yeah. that the, is uh, working yeah. assiduously uh, to advance many of the, the the very concerns that are being raised here in the Pontifical Academy. Yeah. Indeed, and I I, th- I think that uh, you know there's a pastoral dimension to this that I I'm not sure is understood um, by the officials uh, like uh, uh, Archbishop Paglia. Look, laity are now being exposed to constant. Uh, information tidbits here and there, they will, uh, whether you like it or not, they will piece these things together. They will form constructs in their mind. They'll draw conclusions. Uh, They see something going on with what looked like the deterioration of the John Paul II Institute. They see uh, these uh, four people, at least, uh, at the Pontifical Academy for Life, who seem to be in opposition to church teaching. Uh, they're hearing about the German um, Snoddle way. Now, you know, most people don't have the opportunity to sit down <laughs> and, and go through these things in detail uh, and, and try to keep them straight. They, they get hit with these things in a flush. And how, how would one not imagine, how, how could one avoid imagining that this is troubling to the, the faithful. And that's what I don't, I don't see any concern being expressed at uh, high levels of uh, church authority that this 
changed situation where there's a just an overwhelming flood of information available. This creates a new pastoral situation, which wasn't true at the time of the Second Vatican Council. It wasn't addressed in uh, Intermorifica. You know, so it's time to really take a look at this and consider the pastoral dimension of it, because I think it's very troubling to the people. Oh, very much so. And today we had the document on uh, the, the synodal, the, the Synod on Synodality's Continental Phase. Uh, even the title of it uh, is raising a few eyebrows. It's uh, enlarge the space of your tent. And it's the working document uh, that's supposed to help guide the discussions throughout this continental phase. But when you get into the details of the synthesis of this, it raises even more questions. But Catholics are seeing this, and I think they're filled with a great anxiety. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think there's a serious pastoral problem here. Uh, Matthew, hang in there. We'll come back on the other side and continue the conversation. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, my guest, taking a look at uh, church news around the world. We've got a new EWTN Real Clear poll and then also a major survey of Catholic priests. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at Catholic news around the world. Uh, There's a new EWTN Real Clear poll, uh, which is especially interesting as the midterms approach. Uh, tell us a little bit about the findings from this new uh, Real Clear Opinion Research EWTN poll. Yes, this is the, the third of our polls for this election cycle. If you'll remember, in 2020, we did four starting in November of 2019 all the way through October of 2020, right before the election. Um, we actually were able to predict re- with reasonable accuracy that the Catholic vote was going to side with Joe Biden. Two years on, uh, what we're finding is that uh, President Biden is definitely underwater. It's almost a a mirror image of the support he had among Catholics uh, in 2020 in his presidential run. But when we begin looking, as we did with this final poll, at six battleground states of Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Nevada, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, uh, we found that the president, uh, his popularity has declined significantly uh, among Catholic voters. And what's especially striking about this is when we average out these battleground states, he has a strong disapproval among Catholics of almost 57.5%. Uh, the total is uh, almost 70% of Catholics right now are not approving of the president, and it is having a very clear impact on the, the races for the Senate and also for the governorships uh, in, in all six of these states. It's uh, really quite striking to poll. Is the, uh, are there particular areas of the country in which that disapproval is stronger than others? Yes. Well, when we look uh, in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, the president is uh, facing much higher levels of disapproval. Georgia in particular jumps out. Mm-hmm. We're looking at an overall disapproval rate of 68% wow. uh, in Nevada. It's 63% uh, in Florida, Ohio where, of course, uh, Trump won, it's slightly lower, which I thought was interesting, 61 and 62. Hmm. But consider that in four of those battleground states, uh, we're talking about in Nevada, in Arizona, in Georgia, and Pennsylvania, he is underwater significantly. And uh, the other problem that he's got then is that this is a drag on the candidates right. uh, who are running for this U.S. Senate and also the governorships. The other really uh, important sort of top line finding for this is that 
Catholics by a vast majority, 63% who are polled consider the economy, that's uh, rising interest rates, inflation, and jobs to be the most pressing issue in the country. Uh, abortion is actually a distant third. So you have immigration, border security, and then abortion at uh, 7.3%. Yeah, yeah. What that means is that uh, the, for, the, for the Democrats who made abortion one of the pillars of their midterm election strategy, that uh, gamble has not paid off because mm-hmm. abortion is not uh, popular or not considered that significant an issue among likely Catholic voters right now. You know, it's funny that they decided to run with that um, because it's it's been known for a long time that while there are those of us who see abortion as the preeminent issue, we're, our numbers are not that great. And there's a relatively small number of people who uh, who see abortion as politically decisive. And so for the Democrats to get behind it as though somehow it could displace concerns about inflation, you know, uh, cost of living. I, I'm just surprised that they, they ran that way. It just seemed politically foolish from the beginning. Well, I think there were two things at work. Uh, we have to go back to the end of June with the Dobbs decision, June 24th, where it was assumed that uh, this issue was going to be a major uh, component in the midterms. It made sense uh, politically. Uh, their assumption was, and, and this seemed to be the case in July and early August, uh, that, uh, as we all know, the historical mantra or maxim is that you need to turn your base out. Uh, and I think the Democrats were planning, or at least the hoping, uh, that the post-Roe reality mm-hmm. uh, would be sufficient to galvanize a base against really strong headwinds of the economy and other concerns for Americans. Among Catholics, what we're finding, focusing as we are, is that, and we were just talking about the Pontifical Academy for Life and the confusion that often exists among Catholics, that uh, in each of these states, uh, we're finding anywhere between 17 to 20 percent of Catholics, let's stress that, Catholics, uh, believe that a woman should have access to abortion at any time during her pregnancy. Hmm. That is a, it's a horrifying number from a Catholic standpoint. Mm-hmm. But what we're also finding in this poll is that uh, among that group, abortion itself still does not rise to the major issue facing the country. Everyone is focused right now on the economy. So this has settled in many ways into a more general midterm in the face also of an economic crisis and a global crisis. And those are pretty strong headwinds politically right. uh, for any candidate, uh, in particular right now, the Democrats. Well, it's true that uh, it would be hard for them to run in any way on the economy. <laughs> it, 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 you'd have to, So they, they pick abortion because they thought that was the best way to turn out the base. Um, but I think, again, overall, most voters don't think abortion is that decisive an issue for them. What's uh, uh, one thing, too, that uh, well, there are two things. The first is that on the governor races, uh, the idea that uh, Catholics somehow are a monolith, that we're seeing these numbers that cut across all groups of Catholics. Now, we as for us, it's very important to focus on understanding where Catholics are. That's why we look at questions like mass attendance, belief mm-hmm. in the real presence, mm-hmm. how often they go to confession. Because from the very beginning of our polling in 2019, we found that there is a massive gulf that exists between Catholics who live and practice their faith on a daily basis, go to mass at least weekly, 
uh, say at least publicly that they follow the teachings of the church, that they go to confession on a regular basis, they vote one way. Catholics who almost never go to mass or go to mass yearly, who never go to confession, uh, tend to vote in a very different way. Now, there are those who understandably uh, would say, well, they're not Catholic. But these are people who certainly identify as Catholics. Yeah, and that's an important thing a, to, to, to note. Absolutely. I mean, it, I remember as an evangelical, we spent a lot of time wondering, is this person really born again? Uh, look, <laughs> you, right. you don't have access. That's not, that's not <laughs> data you have access to, you know. Uh, you have to rely on objective standards. Mass attendance is a very good way of uh, asking uh, is this person seriously practicing the faith? If they're not right. going to Mass, they have a good chance they're not very serious about their faith. And and, and it is sometimes uh, surprising to, to reporters when I talk to them about these poll results that uh, why there is such a strong correlation between going to Mass on a daily or weekly basis and believing in the real presence. Yeah. <laughs> that surprises them, huh? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's, it's a, it, there's a disconnect in some ways in understanding, wow, so they really, I guess, believe this. And yes, they do. And, and it tends then to shape their lives. And this is also the same group that's most upset uh, with President Biden. His highest disapproval rates are among those who go to mass on a daily and weekly basis. And one of the most interesting takeaways in this poll is that in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, belief in the real presence and those who go to mass on a weekly or daily basis, they're skewing a little higher in these polls. And they are also the the group that is most motivated to vote, which means that uh, in very tight races, I'm thinking in particular of the one in uh, Pennsylvania right now, right. Uh, mm-hmm. on the on the governorship with Josh Shapiro, mm-hmm. who has a narrow lead over Doug Mastriano, uh, Mastriano in for, for the, in Pennsylvania, but also in the race uh, between Dr. Oz and Fetterman mm-hmm. uh, for the seat in, in in the Senate. Those differences could prove very significant. Right. So we could be looking at a cohort of Catholic voters that could prove the difference in a similar way that blue-collar Catholics yep. helped guarantee uh, Donald Trump's victory in Ohio uh, in some of those key smaller districts because they turned out to vote. Yeah, very good. Let me jump to another survey. Uh, this is of Catholic priests. And um, taking a look here at the story, um, this was uh, who actually, I'm looking at this now, and it's not clear to me who actually initiated this particular study, the Catholic Project. Yeah, it's called, yeah, the Catholic Project, which is a a research group at the Catholic University of America, uh, surveyed um, about 3,516 priests across 191 dioceses and eparchies in the United States. So this is a huge... Uh, body of research of priests who are actually in ministry. And it's a very significant study, and I'm glad you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, and and this is done uh, in in view of uh, what's happened to priestly attitudes since the Dallas Charter. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this has been a a pretty monumental uh, 20 years. Yeah. So we have... The, the great barometer of uh, 2002 with the Dallas Charter, what has been the life of priests like uh, over the last two decades? And one thing that uh, I thought was a really 
interesting takeaway on this is that for the most part, priests have what is, is termed in this report high levels of well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and in that sense, I think uh, now there have been declines in that. Uh, so, for example, in 2002, that study found that about 72 percent of priests said that they were very satisfied with their life as a priest. Okay. It's now down to 62 percent. Oh, okay. We're saying the same thing in, in 2021. Mm-hmm. That's actually higher than, to be honest, I might have expected personally, just given the complexity and the challenges and so many of the crises that uh, priests everywhere have faced over the last 20 years. Well, one of the things that I heard from from many priests, and uh, it, it, it's a sense that their bishops don't have their back anymore. And, um, you know, it's a phrase that recurs. Uh, does this survey address that? Yes, it does. And uh, that was one thing that um, uh, does emerge out of this, that uh, the report says that about an average 49, 50 percent uh, express confidence in their bishop. Now, that is a significant drop from 2001. Let's again remind that uh, that was the year essentially where the whole catastrophe of the nightmare of Boston came out uh, and then the tidal wave of abuse cases and other things. So that's um, down from 63 percent in 2001. So what we're seeing is a drop of almost 13 or 14 percentage points among priests uh, that they have confidence in their bishop. Now, part of that uh, is a reporting of lower levels of trust uh, uh, among diocesan priests than their religious priests. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hear the music coming up. Uh, I'd like to spend more time on this, but we'll have to wait for another day. Matthew, thank you. Uh, for Great privilege to be with you, as yeah. always. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, again, bringing us some insight into some of these, well, these new social science uh, surveys that are out there, and also some news going on with the Pontifical Academy for Life, which is rather troubling. I'm Al Cresta. <laughs>